0: we <laughs> It is wonderful to be with you this morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And uh, I think the only pastor on staff with a cold this morning. So uh, I know it's just delightful. So if I didn't greet you, it's not because of rudeness. It's just because you don't want what I'm sharing this morning. Uh, hey, you, uh, you might want to grab your notes out of your handout. We're continuing a series. It's called Pagan Love, and we're walking through Titus, the book of Titus in the Bible. We're walking straight through it, and the premise of the book, the premise of this series is really simple. It's that God loves everyone. And so if you're here, you're just checking this whole Christianity thing out, you might consider yourself far from God. You're not a Jesus follower. You just need to know God loves you right? Uh, the word pagan just means outsider, I mean outside of the Christian faith. And you need to know that God loves pagans. Now, if you're here, you are a Jesus follower. You are a Jesus follower because when you were far from God and when you were a pagan, God's love crashed into your world and invaded your world and revolutionized your world. And now you're not on the outside of God's love. You're right on the inside. And, and you know firsthand that God loves everyone, even people like you. Okay, so that's what we want to go after in this. And and I want to begin with a story that happened in my life. I shared a story from high school last week. I'll share one this week. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I played football. All the way through high school, played football. And I, I, I was playing for the team, just the sophomore team. And when uh, playoffs started, at the end of the football season, the varsity team went to playoffs. And they invited the sophomores to come up and be part of the varsity team. Well, I was thrilled, right? I'm just this little sophomore. I barely know the uh, the plays that the coach is calling, but I'm so excited. I'm standing on the sideline. My uniform is spotless, right? There's no mud. There's no dirt on it. And I just wanted to get some kind of scuff mark on my uniform to pretend like, oh, see, he's important. He He was able to play in the game. Well, we're there in the playoff game. I'm there on the sideline. I got my helmet. I'm ready. I'm kind of standing near the coach. There's no chance he's going to call me, right? No chance he's going to call my name. I'm on the outside. But I'm I'm there. I'm ready to go. And at the very end of the game, our team is ahead by 20 plus points. The very last play of the game, the coach calls my name. And I am so thrilled. I pop my helmet on. I run in. I don't know what play he calls. I don't know what's going on. All I know, the ball gets snapped. I'm running around like crazy. I'm confused. I see a guy. I, I jump on him. I'm in on the tackle. I mean, it was like the greatest day of my life because I had a scuff mark on my knee. And I was in the game. And, and in fact, if you'll indulge me, I think we have a video clip of, of that scene. So please, just enjoy this video. I'm right. <laughs> you know, my story was true as well. We showed that clip because it really does show how it feels for somebody who's on the outside to be graced and to be brought right into the middle. And that's what the gospel's all about. That's what the good news is all about. It's that nobody is too far gone. Nobody's too far on the outside, but that they can't be brought right into the very center of God's love through Jesus Christ and his grace. And so that's what we want to talk about today. Again, if you're, following along on your notes you need to be uh, you need to recognize that the very first thing Paul talks about in Titus 2 is that grace works itself out in living it works itself out in our lives in other words you can see it in action he says in Titus 2 uh, verse 1 as for you Titus "...promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching." So Paul's writing this to a young pastor named Titus. Titus was a pagan. Now he's a follower of Jesus. And Paul says, "...you promote the kind of living, Titus, that reflects wholesome teaching." In other words, our conduct reveals our character. How we live reflects the teaching that we internalize, the message that we believe. And so uh, Paul continues, he says, Titus, teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, to live wisely. They must have a sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. And Instead, they should teach others what is good. So here Paul goes after uh, the training of Titus and he says, Titus, when you're dealing with the senior citizens in your congregations, uh, teach them not to judge, not to condemn, not to mumble, get off my lawn all the time. Right. Uh, teach them rather to be sober minded, self-controlled, that um, they would enjoy respect as they live respectably, uh, that they would have sound faith and over all these things. Be filled with love and patience. When we go through um, the truths uh, that we affirm here at Overlay Christian Church in our membership class, one of the things we talk about is the idea of the trajectory that you're on. What is the trajectory that you're on? And, and, and we just talk very simply about is the trajectory you're on one that is filling you with more graciousness and more kindness and more patience and more love? Is it growing your character? Are, are you becoming more generous as you live? Or are you just getting older and meaner, right? Because some people are on that trajectory and the trajectory that you're on is very, very important. We know that where we're aiming for now, it's only going to increase as the years pass. And so it's important for us to be on a good trajectory. Recently, I was in the home of one of our Overlake families, and um, I was there. I met um, the parents of this particular Overlaker, and the the gentleman I met was 85 years old. He was a retired missionary and pastor. He'd been uh, serving Jesus for decades and decades, and he was just so filled with joy in Vitality, um, uh, he had been to Overlake before, and so he knew of this church, and he knew what God was doing here, he said, oh, God is doing such a good thing at Overlake, and I said, you know, I, I believe that's true, and then th- this beautiful elderly woman came in, and she was using a walker, and, and he stood up as she entered the room, and he said, Pastor Mike, I want to introduce you to my wife, this lovely lady has been my bride for over 60 years. And I said to the, uh, I, I said to his wife, I said, "Well then, you must be quite a saint." Now check this out. This is what she said. She had a twinkle in her eye. In her eye, she said, "This, you know, Mike, I am a saint, <laughs> and so is he." And she affirmed him, and they just, they had so much love for Jesus and for the Word of God, which tells us about Jesus, and for one another. They had more passion in their marriage than most 30-year-old couples that I know. And I just remember thinking, oh, I i i want to learn from you. I want to be on that kind of a trajectory. Uh, as I went to leave, just a little bit later, uh, they walked me to the door. And I shook his hand goodbye, and he held on to it. And he began to pray for me. And he began to pray for you and the work that God was doing at Overlake. And, and, and honestly, it blessed me so much. I just was thinking to myself, can I live in your house? <laughs> I, I want to learn from you. I, I want to be on that kind of a pathway. On Wednesday, I was talking to uh, Dale Snyder. He's one of the guys who serves uh, with a, a ministry here to our seniors, and and he is 83 years old this year. He was telling me later this month he's taken his 13th trip to Cambodia to do a training mission in Cambodia, and and I said, "Oh, that is amazing, Dale. You're 83 years old, taking your 13th trip." I said, "When did you start taking these trips?" How old were you when you started taking these trips to Cambodia? He said, I, I was 74 when I took my first trip to Cambodia. Yeah that's exciting. Friends, that's the kind of a trajectory that we need to be on. That's the kind of uh that's the kind of stability and solidity in the faith that we need to go after as we grow in our faith. Senior citizens are not just to be seniors only in age, but they're to have seniority in love, in kindness and in goodness as well. Uh, Kay Carruthers, just a dear saint here at Overlake, uh, in her golden years, she's investing as like a mentor mom in our Mothers of Preschool program. And it's just so cool to see how she's loving on these younger ladies and caring for them and just walking with them as they go through the chaos that is their life as well. Friends, that's what God's doing at Overlake. And if you're here and you're in that age bracket, I just want to say I affirm you and I love you and I honor you and respect you. And you are living the life that God wants you to live. You are providing wisdom. You're providing mentorship and an example for us as we follow in your footsteps in the faith. So thank you for that. Uh, Paul continues. He says in Titus 2, verse 4 and 5, These older women must train the younger women... To love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Okay, and again, what's Paul going after? He's going after the question, how is our behavior communicating the love of Jesus Christ? And so in all these different scenarios, he's trying to answer that question. So, young women, we're, uh, the call for you is that you're to love your husbands and your kids. Is that a priority in your life? Is that always going to be a priority for uh, women of faith? And the answer is yes, it is. Always. You know, it, to be loving of your husband, to be loving of your children, that will be priority and, And what's interesting is I have been in ministry, this is my 20th year, I have yet to enter into a season of ministry where I've not heard some kind of a story of a young mom who has decided to leave her husband and to leave her family to pursue other relationships or other adventure or other pursuits. And it it astounds me. I think when I first entered into ministry, I made the assumption that it was guys who were dogs, right? And it was guys who would leave their wives for this adulterous affair. Guys who would leave their families and go off and be flakes and eternal adolescents and that kind of thing. And to be sure, there are a lot of those stories as well. But I want you to understand that over 20 years of ministry, I would put the percentage at about 50-50, that it's amazing to me how many young women, uh, they steal their hearts and they harden their hearts against their husband or against their family and they end up going pursuing their own selfish ends. But Paul says, that's not how you communicate the grace of Jesus in this world. That's not how you allow the grace of Jesus to impact the way that you live. Uh, Paul says, look, how you love your husband matters. How your kids see you treat your husband and love your husband matters. Do you know psychologists today tell us that if you want your children to feel loved, if you want your children to feel secure, the most important thing you can do is not tell your kids that you love them. The most important thing you can do for your kids is not even show your kids that you love them. The most important thing you can do is to authentically and honestly love your spouse because as you love your spouse, your children feel secure and they feel safe and they feel loved. And that's what Paul's going after. He says, live wisely, be pure, do good. Uh, it, he also says, be submissive to your husband. And we've talked about this many times at Overlake uh, because we believe scripture. We believe the Bible teaches for wives to be submissive to their husbands. And we believe that uh, also uh, we believe that the Bible says, husbands, you're to be serving and submissive to your wives. And so it's in context that we believe the context is in Ephesians 5.21, where Paul writes, each of you should be submissive to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so it's in that context that we say, yeah, wives, in a healthy marriage, it is natural and lovely that you would respect and honor and submit to your husband as you enjoy how he serves you and listens to you and submits to you as well. So that is the context for how we would view this uh, marriage and this passage that's uh, revealing to all the pagan world watching that God's love really does impact marriages and it makes these marriages lovely and transformative and non-combative. That's what this whole thing is about and I don't think any of this is really new material here at Overlake. However, I would focus on the clause that makes us choke on our Starbucks uh, in this passage. And that clause is, uh, teach them to work in their homes. Now, I I just recognize, I I might really jump out. Some of you, you noticed I just jumped past it. I didn't want to land there and have you gag and not read the rest of the passage. So here's the deal, to work in your homes. Question, is it always going to be a priority? If you have a home and if you are a wife and a mom, is it going to be a priority uh, for you to have your primary ministry be in your home? And the answer is yes. And I would also answer that question for you dads, as a father, as a husband, that for you, your priority is also to be in the home, that you recognize, we talked about this last week, the litmus test of your faith is what's going on in the home. And how that ministry is going. So yes, a woman should work in her home and so should a man. But in this passage, does Paul mean that once for all time in every culture until Jesus returned that a woman should work only in her home? Does he mean that women should never work outside of the home? You can take a breath. Right, I can feel the tension in this moment. The answer, I believe, is no. And I believe this because in order to understand the fullness of Scripture, you must study two things when you study Scripture. If you're filling in the blanks, you must study both text and context. Text and context. Every biblical scholar will always study two things when they open the pages of Scripture. Text and context. What does this text say? Who is it written What does it mean for them? And what does it mean universally? Those are the things that are always studied, text and context. And when Paul writes this passage, he is speaking directly into a Greco-Roman culture and saying, this is how you're to live in your context to make the biggest splash for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, women, you are to work in your homes and exclusively there because in that context, that's all they had. See, Paul was writing to Crete. That's where Titus was on Crete. Crete was first century Greece. This is the homeland of democracy where every citizen could cast an equally weighted vote. Now remember, the only citizens in Greece were male citizens. The only educated people in Greece were men. The only literate people, the only respected voices, the only ones with influence, weight, or power were male. And the men weren't interested in sharing their power or sharing their voice or sharing their vote with the female members of society. And unfortunately, it's still like that in many cultures around the world today. In our culture, in our context, praise God... Right, Women read, and they're well-educated, their voices respected, their influence, contribution, power for good. The leadership they bring, not only in their homes, but in ministry, and in society, politics, and business. All of this is recognized and valued. And I would argue this is not only beautiful, it honors God, because God made both men and women in His image. And that means he has communicated value to all, that he has a calling and intellect and drive on every life created. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm also not arguing that there is a universal call that all women are to work outside of their homes. That's not it either. Right, Because there's this incredibly high and holy calling. And if you are called by God to be mommy and to be a homemaker and that is where you come alive, then please understand that I would honor you and say that's an incredibly difficult and honorable call on you. But what Paul's saying is whether you work in or out of the home, you're to prioritize the home. You're to make that your first and foremost priority just as the man, just as the husband. And working together in submission is how all this flourishes. I'll give you a specific example. I've got a good friend who is a graphic designer and a really good graphic designer. He's a cartoonist as well and uh, did very, very well for himself. And he fell in love with a woman who was like this super brainiac, molecular biologist. I, in fact, I don't even totally understand it because somehow the word nuclear comes into her title, but I have no idea if that's, how can you be a nuclear biologist? I don't know. So I'm just gonna go, she's a molecular biologist. Now she makes about four times the amount he does and her brain is about two and a half times as large right? And so they fell in love, and, and, they st- and they both love Jesus, and they're walking this road of marriage, newly married, trying to figure out how they're going to work things. And, and he starts to discover he loves to cook, and he loves to be at home, and he wants to office out of his home, and, and all this stuff's going on. And, and she feels alive when she's in her workplace pursuing that path. So they prayed about it. They really felt like, you know what? If, if God gives us kids, then the guy says, you know, I'll be the stay-at-home dad, the primary parent at home. I'll work out of the house and, and I'll set you free to follow after what you feel God's called you to in terms of your career. And they have two kids now and they're both flourishing and it's just this, this beautiful picture. But again, all of this is under the context of mutual submission in the home. And they're both making their home the number one priority in their life. Now, I say all this I know that when you read the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul and you recognize he, he does more for women than any other writer of his day. That he honors women and that he respects women and he calls men to love women and to serve women and to care for women in a way nobody else was doing in his day when he was writing. So he went further than anybody else of his day in terms of respecting everybody, no matter what their gender But still, even Paul, I don't think, could have imagined a female being a molecular biologist. Or a nuclear biologist, whatever that is, okay? He just, he couldn't have pictured it. That wasn't his context. So what we do is we take his words, we see the context that he's writing in, and then we see, God, what is it that you have for us in our context today? What is interesting is if you want a biblical example of what women working looks like, read Proverbs 31. Because it's very, very interesting that a Proverbs 31 woman not only makes her home her priority, but she also has a successful real estate business going and she has a cottage clothing industry going out of her house. So it's just this incredible picture of what industry in the home looks like. Okay. Uh, Remember that Paul was a man with a singular focus. And I say this because in the next passage we're going to read. Paul had a singular focus. His focus was how do you bring the gospel alive into this first century context? And so I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. And again, it's going to sound strange to us. Titus 2, 9 and 10. He says, slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Now that last line is what Paul's going after. Making the good news of Jesus attractive. That's the goal. And, and, and certainly, if you read these words and you find yourself in a place where you're working a minimum wage job or you're in a career which uh, isn't your first choice, or maybe you're working a job which uh, it isn't uh, the fullness of your education or your skill set, then you need to hear what Paul's saying because he's speaking to you in that employment context. These verses make perfect sense there. In other words, how do you bring the message that transforms your work environment, even if it's not ideal for you, how do you bring that message? And the answer is, well, you become the world's best employee. You show up early, you leave late, you go above and beyond, you don't steal their resources, you don't steal their time by slacking off. I mean, isn't isn't that right? Isn't that the best way to get your boss to notice that there's something different about your character? Isn't that the best way, incidentally, to get you promoted into a place where you become more alive and you use more of your skill set and more of your drive, your calling, and your ambition? See, yeah, those are the ways in which you make the biggest difference is by listening and obeying and uh, working hard for your boss. And so that's what Paul was going after, not only in this passage regarding slavery, but in the other passages where he talks about slavery as well. Think about context for a moment. In this ancient civilization and all of the civilizations, slavery was an integral part of their political and economic system. It was much different than we would conceive of it today. The context was different. And when I say context, I hope you understand what I mean. Context is simply the world that surrounds somebody. So the context for a fish is water. And then the philosophical question that comes up, does a fish know that it's wet? Right? If that's all of the context that it has, does a fish even know that it's wet? And and so in this context, Paul's writing in the first century world, slavery was simply a part of every culture and every civilization. And in that context, uh, that was the water that everyone swam in and nobody realized that they were wet. Paul's primary uh, motive is, how do you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into that context? And so what we would say is in our context, we view these words, we put them into the employment context, and they work perfectly there. But I would say that the context of slavery has morphed just a bit for us today. And so we read of slaves in Thailand and Africa and even human trafficking here in America. And we respond with a bit uh, uh, more uh, vehemence, right? N- this is not okay. Uh, we will not stand back and accept this reality, right? You, you read a story or you hear one of our missionaries come back from Thailand and they tell a story of an eleven-year-old girl being forced to work in a brothel, and you say, uh, "No, no, I I don't want her to please her master by servicing more Johns. That, that's inconceivable." And if by my voice or my serving or my prayer or my giving, I can end her slavery, that's what I will work for. That's what I will pursue. And Overlake Christian Church, we have as a part of our vision, the goal of setting a thousand slaves free. And we're working diligently toward that end. But I simply want to say all this because you need to understand, Paul would join us in this same mission. If you read through the book of Philemon, Paul pleads with a slave owner to set his slave Onesimus free so that he might join Paul and serve in ministry with him. If you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus Christ inaugurates his ministry by saying that he has been called to set the captives free. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that God the Father joins Israel in a slave redemptive process where he takes Israel from Egypt through the leader named Moses, where Moses declares to Pharaoh, let my people go. So you understand that this is a part of God's purposing, God's fulfillment of freedom, not only in a societal context, but in a spiritual context as well. So uh, what I want to say is that Paul is such an interesting study, but where he really lands is in the place of everyone being treated with equal value because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is the one, again, I said he goes further than anybody in his day ever went. Read this verse with me. It's in Galatians 3.28. Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, that's the bottom line for Paul. That's where we want to go after as well, that in Christ, we are all one. That there is no person, no individual, no group of people is to be treated less. No one is to be minimalized or marginalized. Nobody is to be uh, swept aside. That because of Christ, all are to be loved. We're to love everyone. And we bring this grace of Jesus into our lives. Others will be attracted to it. And they will say yes to His grace as well. Okay, we'll continue. It says uh, in the next verse there, "...in the same way encourage young men to live wisely. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind." Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. All right, let's unpack that for a moment. Men, live wisely. And he says a lot about this in chapter 1 as well. We unpacked it last week. But we are to live and we are to teach. We're, we're to let our messaging be consistent with our character. And what Titus is charged by Paul, he's he's charged to be an example in the way that he lives. That by his life, uh, he will um, give the foundation for the message, the words that he says. Uh, some people have gone so far as to say, your loudest message that you ever preach is the way in which you live. That's what Paul's saying to Titus. And uh, the challenge is that you're to live in such a way, you're to teach in such a way that it cannot be criticized. Now, I underline that verse in my Bible. Teach in such a way that you can't be criticized. Because I have not figured out how to do that just yet. I actually read it and I thought kind of objectively, was Paul criticized in his teaching? Of course he was. Now, how about Jesus? Jesus was the greatest teacher ever to walk this planet. Like, uh, bar none, Jesus was the best. Was Jesus criticized in his teaching? Of course he was. So then I started thinking, well, uh, so what does it mean then that, that your teaching can't be criticized? What? Because uh, there's always going to be somebody who'll take a pot shot. What is Paul going after? And my thought is this, that, that Paul is saying, make sure. That the people who need to hear this message of God's grace the most, that they can't criticize you. They can't criticize the way you live. They can't criticize the way you teach. That you don't come across hateful. You don't come across hurtful or harmful. But the way you live, you're authentic. You're transparent. You're humble. And you, you give a winsome message of the grace and the love that's available in God. Nothing to be criticized in that. If you're going to be criticized, right, let the criticism come from the Pharisees. They're the ones who criticize Jesus or Paul. Uh, Let them come from the self-righteous, the legalistic, the religious folks, the ones who have a special in with God. Uh, Let them be the critical ones. But you, right, you share that God loves everyone. And the folks who are curious and humble, they will find your message intriguing and winsome and gracious because God does, in fact, love everybody. If you're filling in the blanks, the next one's very simple. The challenge is that we're to live and to teach loudly. We're to live out loud and we're to teach our message. Let our words back up our lives. Titus 2.15 says, you must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary. So don't let anyone disregard what you say. All right. The encouragement is that you can't let anyone despise these truths. Don't let anyone poo-poo the grace of Jesus or tell you that uh, there are people who fall outside the limits of it. What's interesting is when you read a verse like this, or when I read a verse like this, the first image comes to mind is the idea of correcting and rebuking, of telling people that they're wrong and telling them what the right pathway is. And I was talking over with my team, we were talking about the image that might come to mind in this passage is the image of a street corner preacher right, who holds up the signs that say something like, you know, uh, God hates you, you're going to hell, you know, stuff like that, real encouraging things. Here's, uh, that couldn't be further from what Paul's saying. See, the message consistently from Paul is that he wants to communicate to the wide world that doesn't know God, that God actually loves them and has a plan for their lives has a plan for their salvation has a plan for their eternity and it's a good plan that's what paul goes after with his entire life where paul says that we're to correct or rebuke or sharpen it, please notice what the verse says you're you're to do this to the believers so the people that are to be challenged, the people that are to be corrected or rebuked are those who are already following Jesus Christ. And yet for one reason or another, their life does not reflect his grace. So in the way in which they live, they're living in errant lifestyle. And Paul says, for those, you're to live iron sharpening iron kinds of lives. Okay? You're to correct and teach, train up and rebuke those who are already followers of Jesus Christ. But for those who don't know Jesus, your primary purpose is to introduce them to the love that's found in Christ. The grace that God reveals through Jesus. In fact, the last thing I want to talk about is that this is grace in three time zones. Grace revealed to us in past, present and future. And Paul talks about this starting in verse 11 and following. He says, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. So what that means is in the past, the grace of God has been revealed. This is through the person of Jesus Christ, who lived on planet Earth 2,000 years ago. He went to his death on the cross and through the crucifixion and the resurrection has provided salvation, Paul says, for all people. Okay, It's available to everyone. That's why we keep going back to this truth, that God loves everyone. He has provided the pathway for salvation. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not a universalist, right? You need to choose to say yes to his gift. You need to choose to say, yes, I receive this gift of salvation. But it is available for everybody. Okay, That's grace in past tense. But then he goes on in the next verse. He says, we are instructed... To turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. So that's grace in our present tense. That we are now, because of God's grace, able to turn from our godless living. We're able to live with this devotion to God. Our character now is able to reflect the grace of God that has transformed us. And then the third tense is in the next verse, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. So that's future tense. Grace, grace is revealed in three time zones, past, present, and future. Now, certainly, I believe this with all my heart. I feel like we walk this at Overlake. The idea is that because of Jesus, our lives right now can be transformed. I've been talking to my team a lot about this, that we can never get outside of God's grace. That grace covers over our sin and it cleanses us and it removes the stain of our past. So grace kind of exists in a a past tense for us. But it also exists in the present tense that it's because of God's grace that we can do good things and we can live a good life and we can show this devotion to God. But it's also grace that allows us to look forward. And uh, I spent a few weeks uh, last month talking about heaven. And how we don't wait heaven enough. That it doesn't in invade our waking thoughts enough. And, and the grace of God revealed to us in eternity. That that doesn't drive us and fuel us enough. My friend Eric Reese. Uh, he was a pastor down on, uh, at Saddleback Church. Which is where I pastored as well. and We have kids exactly the same age we used to drop our daughters off at preschool together. And then as we were walking out of the parking lot, we'd give each other high fives, the good daddy salute, right? And we just, we loved walking that road together. And I found out a couple weeks ago, he'd been posting on Facebook and Twitter that, that he was requesting prayer for his daughter, Jesse. And, uh, I didn't know what was going on, but I began to pray and and then last Wednesday, I heard the news that uh, this beautiful 12-year-old girl uh, had been having some problems with her eyesight, so they took her into a couple of doctors and then a specialist, and it turns out that she has an inoperable brain tumor. And they, uh, the experts have declared to the parents that they need to prepare themselves. She probably has less than three months to live. Now, in the midst of news like that, Uh, your world is rocked it's absolutely revolutionized it's transformed and and if there was no hope of heaven if there was no life after this life then i honestly don't know where you would go but of course we pray for her and we pray for the family and in tears i i want to walk this road with my buddy eric and we trust that even in the here and now, God can meet them and love them and carry them and care for them. We even believe that there's healing available in the here and now. But if healing is not what God chooses to reveal in Jesse's life, then you need to understand there is this incredible hope of heaven. That the, the recognition that one day God will conclude history. History. And that this timeline will end and heaven will crash into earth and there will be this eternal reality that absolutely will surpass anything we know in terms of glory, in terms of joy, in terms of being present with God himself. And you ask the question and and the pagan world asks the question, is God's love even available in the middle of the death of a child? And the answer is yes. In fact, God himself has walked that road. And that's why Paul concludes with this verse. He says, He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us, his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. And so because God allowed his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross, we are now set free. And the scripture says we are now cleansed, that we are made to be God's very own people. And because of his grace, now we can be totally committed to these good acts of love, these good acts of service, these good deeds that God calls us to and prepares us for. And what I'm trying to say by that is very simply that grace has crashed into our lives in the past 2000 years ago on the cross. The grace impacts our life today in the here and now, transforming our character, letting us shine and live with joy and service. But grace will invade our lives in a much more complete way on that day when heaven crashes into earth. And we should live in light of that reality and let his grace invade us and fuel us today. In order to illustrate that, I simply want to close our time by telling you a story from World War II. And it's a true story. It was related to Ray Bakke. Uh, Ray Baki tells this story. And um, it's a story of this prisoners of war camp the Germans were running. And it was several miles behind the German enemy lines. And there were these two camps sort of joined together by one chain link fence that no prisoner was allowed to, to uh, approach. And the Germans noticed that in these very full prisoners of war camp, that there were no chaplains. There was nobody to care for these soldiers spiritually. And so they put a word out, a message out to the allies. Are there any chaplains that would be willing to come and live in these prisons, basically, and, uh, and, and minister to these, to these soldiers? And, and, and the camp... It was half American soldiers and half British soldiers. And so there were two chaplains who volunteered for that duty, an American chaplain and a Scottish chaplain. Now, friends, just think about that for a moment. Uh, Somebody who is free, somebody who is outside of the war, and they say, you know what? I'll go. I'll live in prison so that I might minister to the prisoners. Just that truth in itself. That's Jesus right there. That's what Jesus does. So they go, they come in, now they become prisoners in this prisoners of war camp, ministering to these uh, different uh, soldiers. And then every day, the guards would allow the American chaplain to approach the chain link fence. And they'd allow the Scottish chaplain to approach the chain link fence. And they could share uh, news and they could pray for one another and encourage one another, just see how things were going. What the guards didn't know was that on the American side of the camp the soldiers had smuggled in enough electronic equipment they figured out how to build a radio. And so they could, in the quiet watches of the night, tune in and listen to news from the front, and they could uh, you know, figure out different headlines of how the war was going, and they would tell the chaplain, and then the chaplain, the American chaplain, approaching the fence would tell the Scottish chaplain, and he would go back and encourage his men with good news from the front. Well, one day, the news came through over the wire that the German high command had surrendered. And so the Americans were ecstatic that the war was officially over. That day, the American chaplain walked to the fence and he shared the news with the Scottish chaplain. And the Scottish chaplain went back and he shared the news with the prisoners there in the British side of the camp. And of course, they erupted in joy and they cheered and they were so celebratory. Uh, the interesting thing, however, was that the German communication lines were completely disrupted at this time. And so nobody in charge of this prisoners of war camp knew that the war was over. And so here were these prisoners living inside of a camp. They're prisoners in this camp, and yet they knew the war was over, that they everything was changed for them. And so they're walking around, smiling, not complaining about the food. They're high-fiving. I mean, they're taking photos with the German guards, you know. And and everything was changed for them, but they're still living in prison. The guards had no idea what was going on. And then uh, the story goes, on the fourth morning, all of the prisoners woke up. And the guards were gone. Sometime over the course of the evening, the guards had heard the news, the war was over, and they snuck out under cover of darkness. And so all of these prisoners, they woke up, they walked cautiously to the gate, they pushed it, and it swung wide open, and they exited that prison as free men. But the Scottish chaplain told Ray Bakke, he said, we walked out free on that fourth morning. But the truth of the matter was we were free four days earlier because we knew the war had been won. Friends, I want you to understand that that is the truth of the gospel. We know the war has been won. Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary has won the war. That it is now absolute certain you are a free man, you're a free woman, that in Christ you have been cleansed. You have been saved. You, you have been saved. You're being saved. And you will be saved. But the truth is. The war is over. That Jesus has set you free. Now you live a life that is free indeed. So that others looking at your life. Might they themselves be free. Let's pray. Jesus I want to thank you for your reality. That you have loved us with an everlasting love. That there is nobody who is outside of the parameters of your love for us. and, And you communicated that love more clearly than any has ever communicated it. By giving your life on the cross. We thank you for that sacrifice. We recognize that it was our sin that drove you to that place. But because of your sacrifice. Our sin is now dealt with. In its entirety. That we are now cleansed by you. That we are now covered by your grace. And we are made free men. And free women. Because you have declared us not guilty. So now Jesus we ask that you would allow us. To live that life. That we would live free. That our character would be transformed by your grace. And that our conduct would reveal. How good you really are. We pray all of this so that those who do not know of your love, those who only know of the church's condemnation and judgment, we pray that you would allow us to live lives that are so attractive to the gospel, that they're so winsome and loving and caring and thoughtful, that others would come to find faith in you because of how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.